Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Dr. Mark Quigley is an Associate Professor of Active Tectonics and Geomorphology in the School of Earth Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Geology has enabled Mark to work all over the world, but his most recent research has focused on the impacts of the 2010-2012 Canterbury earthquake sequence on Christchurch and the surrounding area of the South Island of New Zealand. Mark says that his experience in Christchurch has many parallels to the current COVID-19 crisis, and the lessons learned there can inspire us to think about innovative ways in which universities, academics and researchers might respond. He sat down for a Zoom chat with Dr. Andy Horvath. How have viruses in the past or pandemics in the past been manifested in earth science? Are they present somehow in the fossil records? Uh, yeah, well, there's, it's kind of a fringe uh, field in some ways, or I guess we could call it an emerging field. But um, certainly there are research teams around the world that look for evidence for past viruses in the geological record, in fossils, through mutations or through changes in fossil structure. So they can't see evidence of the viruses themselves, but they can see evidences, evidence in the, in the fossils that viruses have been around for long periods of time. Um, and so one of the recent studies I, I came across had said, said that, look, you know, we've, we've seen evidence for these kind of ancient viruses, fossil evidence for them, in rocks that are from the Paleozoic, so 550 to 450 million years old. And I think it's, you know, they, they call them these, um, these intra-organism viral elements. And so the idea that, that I, I think is important to help contextualize all of our experiences on Earth is we've just been part of this planet's history for, for a second, you know. We've, we were a blink on the, uh, the radar of our long-term history on the plan, of the planet. And uh, viruses have been around for a very, very long time. And so we, it just helps us contextualize this kind of cohabitation with all of our planets, animals and species, and that includes viruses as well. So viruses in the past have wiped out certain animals? Um, they've created mutations. They've, comp- they've created sort of changes in fossil structure and things like that, that, that specialists can use as proxies for the existence of viruses at that time. What can we learn from earthquake disasters that help us with the COVID-19 environment currently? I know you've been involved in the Canterbury earthquake scenarios. Well, there's a whole bunch of things. I mean, I think the first thing that we can think about is that everyone on the planet, we're all a product of our experiences, right? So we all perceive things differently. We have different, uh, shall we say, risk perceptions and different risk thresholds and different behaviors, different ways of thinking about things. And because this COVID-19 emergence is a global problem, you have to conceptualize that globally. You know, we have all of a sudden, we have something that every human on the planet is co-invested in. And that kind of thing happens for a lot of natural disasters at a more local or regional level. Uh, They're incredibly complex. Everyone's sort of perceptions of things are are different. And um, I think one of the most useful comparatives, I, I, I think, in terms of comparing what's happening to us all as a planet at the moment 
compared to things that have happened on a more local or regional scale, is that there have been many, many, many major disasters in Earth history, earthquakes that have killed hundreds of thousands of people, um, even, you know, in terms of the HIV cumulative fatalities in the U.S., we're talking about something that's killed 675,000 Americans compared to the, uh, the the numbers at the moment that are coming out of the U.S. So it's useful to, when a lot of people look at things like these uh, forward-looking mathematical models of the impacts of COVID-19. And uh, you can look at that from so many different sort of perspectives and experiences. One earth science perspective may be, let's look at these numbers in terms of some other major natural disasters that have occurred around the world. And then let's think about things like the relative domestic media coverage of the COVID-19 versus, for example, the Haiti earthquake, which killed 316,000 people in a matter of seconds, or lesser known events like the, the tropical cyclone Nargis in Myanmar, which in 2008 killed 140,000 people. You know, it's just it's just a different way of kind of thinking about what we're perceiving on the local and regional levels compared to events that occur overseas. And I think the key message there is that a lot of in a lot of places around the world, people are forced to deal with extreme events with much more regularity. What I'm talking about regular earthquakes and floods and and other types of natural disasters, um, disease. Uh, epidemics, all these sorts of things that kill tens to hundreds of thousands of, of their citizens all the time. And so it just helps us, you know, just get a, a more global perspective on on the challenges that we're seeing come through at the moment. And it's uh, it's really important, I think, to see what kind of lessons that we learned from these past events may be applicable to our current situation. Mark, can you share some case studies with us? Um, well, I think one of the things that's most relevant to us in the university context is uh, the lead up to the university closure and then the the closure itself, the kind of operational kind of um, things that our leaders at the university have had to deal with and have done a very good job at, at, at dealing with. For me, I think one of the interesting things was, was uh, comparing it to my own experiences in Christchurch from 2010 and 2011 where the University of Canterbury, my host, my host university, was shut down uh, three different times, one time for, for only a week, but a second time for a full month, and then a third time for another week. And, and in thinking about the impacts of that, um, really what was happening was we were all in our offices, and then it was like a giant reached down and, and shook our building to bits. Um, and within a few minutes, we had to kind of grab what we thought we might need for the next month or indefinite amount of time and, and, and get out of the building. And then that was it. Um, and through all that, you had to um, try to keep your teaching curriculum going as best you could. In one instance, uh, students had an exams that were scheduled for the next week. And so students had to kind of cope with this massive change. All of a sudden, they couldn't come to campus and they had uh, makeshift um, places where we were holding exams and all that sort of stuff. And also, I mean, this was in 2010, 2011. The, the uh, sort of digital communication technology wasn't at the level that it is at the moment. And so, um, you know, a variety of sort of different types of approaches had to be rapidly dreamt up, you know, think solutions such as how do we make sure that the assessment of students is fair, uh, given the changing parameters, given that the university has been closed for um, sort of a month and a half intermittently over this time. Um, how, how do we ensure that uh, our research students are not being disadvantaged by these closures? How do we ensure that our, 
our academics are able to continue their performance and, and, and continue to do research and, and to try to, instead of just being in a response phase or, or being in a, in a kind of a, a, a stage where you're just kind of reeling from the effects, how can we kind of encourage our scientists, encouraging our universities to, to lead the narrative, to kind of to drive the response, to make sure that, um, that we're on the front foot through all this. So those were the kind of experiences I had in Christchurch. And geez, they're, they're so analogous to what's, what's happening here from a whole bunch of uh, levels, from trying to think about how to assess students fairly, um, how to deal with, you know, postgraduate student scholarships and all these sorts of things, the continuity uh, of, of our education at both levels. Um, and certainly trying to get our academics, our colleagues, to see opportunity in this crisis, because my experience is that these things can really push us in two different trajectories. Uh, one, one trajectory that a lot of us might go in is that this is just, it, it's just overwhelming. You know, there's just so much information out there. There's highly specialized medical research, for example. There's statistical models. There's all this kind of sort of scientific data at one hand. Um, and then there's just a swamping of the, the media with really, really complex problems with no clear solutions, like um, how to keep economies running uh, whilst practicing social distancing, how to equip our hospitals, how to equip us with the things we need to, to stay safe all these huge problems. And I think the effect that that has on a lot of people is they go, wow, this is really, really hard. This is so complex. There's so many wicked problems that have arisen from this. You almost can't deal with it. It almost becomes just so much noise and, and, and in a sense, negative energy that you can kind of withdraw from that. And, and that may have implications for your happiness and your mental health, but also how productive you are as a as an academic at the university, and I think for for that, what, what my advice has been to whether they're students or my research team or my colleagues, is is it's not really about your day to day at the moment. It's not really about how productive you are today relative to yesterday, or how happy or or sad you were about the state of the world based on what what media you you read or whatever. It's about managing your long-term trajectory. And I think that was something that, you know, the Canterbury earthquakes, a lot of people kind of think of an earthquake as a one-off example, but that earthquake sequence went on for a year and a half. At any time we could be sitting in our university or at home and just have this strong shaking come and just completely disrupt our world. And um, I think for us, it was, it was like, yep, there's, there's these challenges, there's these stimuli that are impacting on us all the time. Um, but we have to manage our long-term term trajectory, managing that to make sure that you're you're not going downhill, that you're not going you're not descending into a into a really negative sort of a place. So that's one type, and then and then the other the other type of kind of response that some people have, and I and I happen to be one of these people, whether for better or worse, is that these events energize you, they empower you, they they force you to to dig deep and to sort of try your best to think of how you fit into this world, even though I'm not a medical researcher and I love data and I love looking at projections and trying to understand statistical nuances in, in, in forward-looking models and all the rest of it. But I do see a way for Earth scientists to contribute to this, this narrative. And I think for me, my response is I'm going to go hard for the next sort of month or so 
to try to to generate as much of a positive impact as I can of of what I whatever scale it eventuates, whether I can contribute to university discussions from an operational point of view, whether I can have discussions with students to kind of help them manage their anxiety. Uh, things like, um, is the university going to look out for me or not? Does the university have my my best interest? Well, of course it does, right? But not all students are able to see that straight away. And, and so helping to ease some of those anxieties and, and kind of say, look, you know, there are things that you that you that you can you can do things about. There are things that you are going to worry about. But some of those things you needn't worry at this particular stage. You can kind of relax from that a little bit. So I'd say like my experience in Christchurch, I mean, in those first months and even going on for a year, it was just, I just dropped everything and just gave myself to that experience. And I was in a fortunate position. I didn't have kids like I do at the moment, but I see similar opportunities here. I think that this is one of these incredibly rare lifetime events. And if you dig deep as a as an academic into some of the the more fringe intellectual components where you think you might offer some commentary, um, it might have a positive impact in ways that you perhaps didn't even see possible at the at the onset. And I think we owe it to our institutions and to ourselves to do our best to try to um, try to contribute. How does an earth sciences department at a university operate? Does everyone like do remote sensing from now on since you, because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine how you're going to do your research. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, so, so that's a good question. It's interesting because it's got so many different elements. So, so let's, let's talk about it first from the perspective of the, the undergraduate students. And I think um, what has happened is that the earth science academics have worked their butts off to uh, ensure uh, an almost seamless transition into virtual teaching, uh, remote teaching. And so, um, you know, lectures are being delivered, uh, pr practicals are being run as best they can, um, and, and the world is going on. Uh, and so I think, you know, there are certain things that are really challenging. Field trips for one, right? So geology, is all about field trips. These students love going on field trips. Well, we we've had to cancel a lot of those, and we're and we may have to cancel more going forward. How do we get students to look down the the microscope at at rocks? How do we get students to look at hand samples of rocks remotely? All these kinds of things. Um, these are challenges, but they're not unsurmountable by any means, as as far as I'm concerned. Um, there's 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 ways of of showing students um, photographs you might take from a microscope and, and sending them around, and what sort of minerals are you seeing in there, and all that sort of stuff. Um, regarding hand samples, oh, there's a variety of things. You know, you could get students to um, try and find an outcrop close to their house and go and have a look at that and to see what rocks are there. Um, you you could uh, just get them to look at rocks virtually. You know, sending around a little video of you looking at the rock and, and identifying minerals, all that sort of stuff. So, so from a pedagogical point of view, you have to change, you have to adapt for sure. Um, but a lot of that stuff is, is 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 firmly in place. From a graduate researcher point of view, postdocs and all that sort of stuff. Um, a lot of these students uh, have been disadvantaged for a variety of reasons. You know, they can't go to present their work at conferences. Um, they can't go out when they were planning to, to to do field work, all that sort of stuff. But with all these students, I think there's also an element of, you know, you could use this time to write up the research you've already done, uh, which you don't need to be at the university to do that. You could use this to attend virtual conferences. There's lots of virtual conferences going on. 
you could use this to think about um, sort of other, shall we say, non-traditional ways of, of communicating your research through um, social media, making your own videos, whatever it might be. And, you know, the bottom line is a lot of the sort of contemporary earth scientists, their, their, their research space is so much on the computer that you can do, do all sorts of things um, remotely through this, through this challenge. Um, from an academic's point of view, look, you know, most academics I know have got sort of five or 10 papers or something that they've always wanted to write or they were working on or, or whatever it might be. And so I think what you'll find is that this is a time for a lot of people to just shut things down from the fieldwork point of view. So just focus on getting up to speed, you know, getting stuff done that you always wanted to do. And, you know, one could make the argument, and I think it would possibly be a bit controversial, but, um, you know, th this is from the point of view of taking stock, reducing our global footprint, just getting up to speed with the research that we need to publish, with, but which, which we haven't. This is our time window to try to do those sort of things. So I think there's a lot of kind of optimistic views that you could have about this of just forcing us to to shut down and reflect internally. And I think one of the other things that's kind of interesting is that a lot of these major um, science uh, uh, bodies, uh, collections, uh, people that run conferences and all the rest of it are making a lot more material virtually accessible and free. And so, uh, you know, people spend thousands of dollars going to these earth science conferences around the world. And a lot of earth scientists are really cognizant of this predicament as we're, we're kind of environmentalists, we're, we're earth advocates on one hand, yet we spend um, thousands of dollars and in, 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 in spout out lots of emissions when we travel across to the you know, to the US or to Europe to attend conferences, um, stay in hotels, um, just to give our 15 minute talk and meet a few colleagues and, and all the rest of it. And so I, I think we can use this opportunity to kind of stimulate alternatives going forward. And it might be also, as, I, as I've said, there will be opportunities here to better engage the underprivileged countries around the world with things like scientific conferences and meetings through this. Um, if they are able to access the virtual connections, it might be that they can go to these conferences virtually that they never were able to afford through their own sort of challenges that they might face. So for example, you know, can we use this opportunity to better engage parts of Africa, for example, in uh, major conferences like the American Geophysical Union Conference and the Geological Society of America Conference? Of course we can. We can try. And I think that that might be one of the, the, the few sort of positive outcomes that, that, that might come out of this. Mark, what's your advice to uh, junior or senior academics out there who are university lecturers? Seeing opportunity in the challenge, I think that's one of the things. And, you know, academics love solving problems and that's what we do for a living. But sometimes the types of problems that we see as being most prominent in situations like this may be outside our field of expertise. Um, but as academics, as, as critics and conscience of society, as analyzers of data, as science communicators um, with diverse perspectives, we have the potential and the power and the expertise to contribute meaningfully, um, even if we're not health scientists. Um, from the point of view of things that earth scientists can do at the moment in the current environment, um, include things like monitoring urban pollution levels through particulates, um, CO2 levels, and so on in our urban centers uh, and how they've changed as a result of the shutdown. I think this is a really fascinating field. We're seeing major um, changes in urban pollution levels uh, because factories aren't running or because people aren't driving their cars and 
uh, there's just a reduction in activity. And I think it shows us kind of what life could be like uh, if we were able to somehow slow down the various inefficiencies that we have in our busy cities, like everybody driving their cars to work every day and, and, and emitting so much. Um, you know, it's, it's a time for a scientist to obtain data and communicate data around, well, this is what, you know, if we're able to somehow reduce our CO2 emissions, reduce our human activity, this is what sort of positive outcomes could come. And I think that's really interesting. And then again, as an earthquake scientist, I've been really fascinated by the fact that, you know, earthquakes are still going on at the moment. And there are other sort of seismic sources that are still going on at the moment. But there's not the urban noise levels in seismicity that we have to worry about. And so, for example, we can study earthquakes now in urban environments with much more accuracy and precision than, than we ever would be able to because there's just a lot less noise. There, you know, there are fewer cars on the roads and uh, fewer other sources of, sources of seismic noise. And, you know, in, in Christchurch, the city was shut down for, for months following the February earthquake. Um, and, you know, the, the conditions were different. We weren't social distancing, of course, but we were able to go in there and, and map faults beneath the city, um, driving uh, big trucks down these uh, abandoned roads and shaking the ground and all the rest of it. There's no way we would ever have been able to do that if the city was, um, was, was functioning. And so there's all these kind of little weird little opportunistic things that could could come from from a from a global shutdown and activity but i think there are a whole bunch of things that can be done and thought about in this perspective and certainly you know from from people's personal perspective how is this influencing you your research how are you operating your postgraduate research team um given the limitations of covid 19 how is your department responding to this what is what sort of operational things are being done and and can we innovate can we try in the face of something that is affecting the entire globe are we able to find novelty and innovation in some of the approaches we're taking can we do things now that when the world is coming out of this are going to have a positive impact, even if it's not directly related to COVID-19, perhaps things like creating a whole bunch of virtual material that will benefit your academic communities and your students going forward. You know, I, I think that it's a very real question to ask. When we come through this, should universities return to the way things were, the way they were operating before or not? We're going to have this absolute mountain of virtual material. We have students that look, to be frank, not all students have been overly interested in coming to, to lectures. Lecture attendance at universities, uh, particularly in Australia, has been a problem. And, and other parts of the world have experienced that, that problem as well. Perhaps our students uh, don't want to learn the way that we're asking them to in the lecture format. Perhaps they prefer a more virtual experience for a variety of reasons. They want to work. Uh, they want to stay at home. They don't want to commute for one one lecture. It may very well be that some of our major courses go to purely online courses at the end of this, and that all of us upskill our, ourselves sufficiently to make sure the students feel engaged and part of something meaningful, even if they are at home on their computers. So I think, yeah, there's so much to do, and and I think it's about, like I said, managing your your day to day just from the perspective of a long-term trajectory and making sure that that long-term trajectory is is happy and, and positive and productive. Dr. Mark Quigley, thank you so much. Great, my pleasure. 
Thank you to Dr. Mark Quigley, Associate Professor of Active Tectonics and Geomorphology in the School of Earth Sciences at the University of Melbourne. And thanks to our reporter, Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on April 6, 2020. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Production and editing by me, Chris Hatzis. Audio engineering by Arch Cuthbertson. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2020, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.